This is Reimagine Law, a podcast about legal education and careers. Welcome, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us for our discussion on social mobility in the legal sector and how law firms can support legal professionals from less privileged backgrounds to progress their careers. We'll touch on the research and evidence underpinning progression, the tools available to support it, and why establishing the right culture and environment matters such a great deal. I'm Elizabeth Robertson, partner and white collar crime specialist at Skadden Arps, an international law firm headquartered in New York. I'm also a board member of Prime, which is an alliance of law firms across the UK and Republic of Ireland, determined to improve access to and socioeconomic diversity within the legal profession. 2021 marks Prime's 10th anniversary. In the past decade, law firms have made significant progress on improving access to the legal profession for those from less privileged backgrounds. But the next big challenge is ensuring they progress their careers. I'm joined today by Tim Smith, partner at Brian Cave Leighton Paisner, where he specialises in planning and environmental law. Tim is also chair of Prime's partner advisory group and a trustee of the Bridge Group. We also have with us Simon Reichwald. Simon is strategic lead for talent at My Kind of Future and a delivery partner for the Government Commission Task Force to improve socioeconomic diversity at senior levels in UK financial and professional services firms. Tim, may I ask you to kick off by speaking about the latest evidence for and thinking on progression? I'm going to begin by uh, saying something about the research that's been done into social mobility in the legal sector. In some ways, social mobility is the new kid on the block for diversity. There have been programs for gender and ethnic diversity run for some time. But I guess one of the reasons why social mobility is a new emergent is because it's coming more into the national consciousness, what we used to call the north-south divide, which the government now likes to call the levelling up agenda, um, is becoming more prominent and it's feeding through into the different professions. Um, To be fair, the legal sector is one of the first to have embraced it seriously, um, and it's done so out of a general sense of equity and fairness, that if you've got talent, you ought to be able to give talent an opportunity to thrive. Um, And so a number of firms um, have undertaken initiatives to improve the social economic diversity of their entrants as trainees, um, supported, of course, by organisations like Prime over the last 10 years. Um, More recently, there have been um, two really interesting pieces of work uh, undertaken, uh, research by the Bridge Group. Uh, And just in the interest of transparency, um, I should declare that I'm a trustee of the Bridge Group. Uh, My firm has been involved in both of the pieces of research that I'm about to talk about. The first piece of research, uh, which was launched about three years ago, was looking at early careers uh, solicitors and the socioeconomic diversity of trainees uh, up to one year post-qualification experience. And there were a number of very interesting conclusions that were derived from that uh, research, one of which was that people from a lower socioeconomic background were more likely to be high performers within their organisations as judged by things like appraisal grades and uh, evaluations. Um, Perhaps more scarily, um, the research shows that they were also more likely to leave their organisations, and the reasons for that were many and varied. 
but law firms have looked at socioeconomic diversity because it's the right thing to do. Um, if ever they needed an economic reason for doing it, that is it, surely. Um, it costs hundreds of thousands of pounds to introduce and train people. Um, if your highest performers are also the ones more likely to leave, then there's clearly something is going wrong. So for that reason, law firms have focused for some time on the entry level uh, to their firms and socioeconomic diversity. Uh, that brings with it, I suppose, a slight danger of complacency, uh, which is that one often hears, in whichever diversity forum we're talking about, that if you sort the pipeline out, the trickle-up effect uh, over time will mean that the socioeconomic uh, diversity of your more senior levels within the organisation will also improve. The second piece of research, the more recent research undertaken by uh, the Bridge Group, um, explodes that myth. Um, uh, I'm bound to comment that uh, I, I haven't seen that proven to be correct in any diversity uh, strand that we've looked at, and certainly not socioeconomic diversity. Um, what the second Bridge Group research showed was that um, that isn't the case, and that there is a high drop-off rate for people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds as they advance towards partnership. Um, it takes longer, um, a year and a half longer for people from a lower socioeconomic background to achieve partnership as compared with more advantaged colleagues. Um, and when one takes into account intersectionality, um, if you're a woman, it takes longer still. If you're a person of black heritage, it takes longer still. Uh, and so there are definitely concerns in there. Um, and what the research looked at was some of the reasons why that might be the case. Um, and I think uh, I can distill from it um, a couple of points. Firstly, if we think about the qualities that we as law firms prize in our partner candidates, very often they put a percentage on social and cultural capital, which people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds don't have to the same degree. Do you have a good network? Are you able to get on well with clients, introduce and sustain new business? Which if you're somebody whose peers have all gone into uh, senior positions within potential client organizations, it's very easy for you to make a case that you are a business builder, uh, which most firms will look for with their partners. But I think even beyond that, if one looks at personal qualities, then the sort of qualities that are prized in candidates are things like confidence, the ability to command authority, whether these people are seen to fit in to the dominant culture of the organization. Um, and people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds often find themselves penalized in those uh, uh, characteristics as compared with their more advantaged colleagues. I think the final thing to say on that, um, which I, I have found to be interesting, is um, I know Simon has spoken before about the journey travelled uh, by people from where they begin to where they end up. Um, and somebody who is, let's say, um, from an inner London comprehensive school on free school meals, who becomes a senior associate at a major international law firm, is much more likely to be happy with their lot. Uh, they're likely to look back and say, my goodness me, look how far I've come. Um, and the impetus to push on to that final stage and become a partner um, is perhaps not there to the same degree. Um, it isn't just about a sense of entitlement that they're lacking, but it's about the distance travelled, um, more likely to be happy with their lot, less likely to press for partnership in the way that their more advantaged colleagues will. Um, so those were my thoughts uh, just on the research and what the research illustrates. Um, but 
but uh, uh, Simon, I know you've got some thoughts that you'd like to share um, about my kind of future and its experience in this area. Yeah, thanks, Tim. And I think you're absolutely right. That distance traveled is such an important one um, uh, 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 in terms of people, the risk of people stopping uh, um, and, and particularly as it gets harder for them. So if they're finding it harder and harder to progress uh, and, and they also look at how far they've come, there's a real risk that, that they stop. And that latent talent is not maximized both for the individual and for that organization. So that whole productivity argument comes into uh, uh, comes into play uh, when you look at that distance, that, that, that distance travel piece. And of course, the, the overriding uh, um, a, a huge driver for greater diversity full stop uh, is um, is that piece around diversity of thought and moving away from groupthink and the more diverse people you have making decisions at all kinds of levels within an organization that the more likely the decisions are to be good ones uh, and of course to the benefit of your clients uh, that, that you are uh, representing and working for. Um, uh, Tim. I think one thing which will be interesting to see is how clients can become agents for change in this area of diversity. Uh, we've become used to um, pitches and presentations to potentially new clients asking us to explain what our um, diversity policies are, um, gender and ethnic diversity in particular, and especially for public sector clients. But more and more clients are being encouraged to look at their own socioeconomic diversity and their uh, service providers. And so once clients start to take more of an interest in it, um, I think the, the further economic reason for law firms looking at it um, becomes particularly important as well. My personal view is that clients have a, um, an important role to play, but to date, I think it's been fairly limited in its effectiveness. And we've seen a number of very high profile international organizations via their general councils or boards um, stipulate some very uh, strong benchmarks, both in terms of hours charged by diverse or socially mobile candidates, um, penalties for fees if you don't comply. But the reality is that those mechanisms have either failed or get lost in the day-to-day -day running of one's business. And the other truth, in my experience at least, is that certainly big law firms have real difficulty in meeting really onerous criteria in that regard. And it's also quite difficult, certainly on an international basis, setting that criteria because working in an international law firm as I do, problems, really vary from, from country to country and indeed continent to continent. So I'm much more supporter of a really good dialogue with clients, um, working together perhaps on pro bono projects or for example, Barclays and Vodafone are very proactive in their support of Prime. I, I'm much more an advocate for those kind of conversations to build awareness, certainly at the stage that we're at now in, in, in terms of this area. I think the difference between carrot and stick uh, is the important one here. You're much more likely to bring people with you if you can show that it's a shared value and a shared objective that you're following. 
Um, the research is interesting. Um, it's a call to arms to uh, to the sector, um, but much more interesting, I think, for our audience will be to hear about some of the tools that we can use to put it into practice, how we uh, deal with the problem which has now been diagnosed? What's the cure to this problem that we've now diagnosed? Um, Simon, I know you've got some thoughts that you'd like to share with us about, uh, about tools and support programmes. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks, Tim. Uh, and there, there's so many uh, tools and, and uh, you know, work is being undertaken to, to address this issue of progression. In the interest of time today, I'm, I'm going to pick on two. I'm going to spend a bit more detail and time on one of them. But the first one I just want to pick up on is obviously, uh, and I think we've managed to get through uh, the first part of this uh, podcast without mentioning the word data, um, but data is obviously a really important one. Uh, and that measuring of progress, uh, and I think, uh, so, so the, the ability to measure progress is hugely important. Uh, it shouldn't stop actions you have firms starting to take actions ahead of them getting data, but clearly getting data to, to, to know where your start point is, how you compare to others, so benchmarking, and then progressing on is, is really important. And when it comes to social mobility, the, the key data question, if you look at the latest research from the Social Mobility Commission, is parental occupation at 14. So it's not free school meals, it's not first generation to go to university, though they are questions you can ask. But what the Social Mobility Commission research shows is that if you're going to ask one question, the key question um, that is going to give you the best indicator uh, of the challenges that come from a lower socioeconomic background is parental occupation at 14. So that would be the one that we'd be encouraging you to, to, um, uh, uh, to adopt. Um, the second piece I wanted to, to, to talk about, and I know we'll have a discussion around this, the, the three of us, is the uh, from a tools point of view that I wanted to talk about, um, really came through incredibly strongly through some current work I'm doing as part of the Government Commission Task Force looking at improving socioeconomic diversity at a senior level in financial and professional um, services. And as part, I'm one of the, my kind of future, one of the delivery partners for the task force. And as part of my early work, I was fortunate enough to interview a huge number of very senior leaders across financial and professional services. Um, and uh, they all talked to me about, as part of talking about why they want to be involved, they talked to me about their journey that they'd been on from a professional career standpoint. And almost to an individual, all of them talked about one of the uh, powerful uh, 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 changes that happened in their life that led to the success they had is they got lucky. And the luck came from someone spotted their potential and their talent and essentially picked, mentored them. So the power of mentoring comes through so consistently uh, 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 for, for, for people who have succeeded. And lots of these senior leaders that, that I've spoken to would be examples of people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, uh, so mentoring is, is, is hugely, has played a huge part in senior people's uh, uh, um, success. And there's the data to back it up as, as well. When you look at the research around mentoring, um, uh, people who are mentored are five times more likely to be promoted than those who are not. The mentors themselves are six times more likely to be promoted. 89% um, of people who are mentored go on to become a mentor. So there's that whole kind of paying it forward, paying it back uh, piece that's hugely powerful. 
Now, of course, there's a very clear difference between mentoring and sponsorship. You know, mentoring is usually uh, is is someone who supports an individual uh, uh, from a broad perspective and shares their experiences um, and the journey that they've been on. Sponsorship is obviously uh, uh, much more typically a senior individual who's seeking to proactively progress the career of someone else. Um, so there are differences between the two I appreciate. Um, and the, the final point I'm, I'm going to make, because I know both Tim and Elizabeth, you've got strong views on this. Mentoring is really widespread. So 71% of Fortune 500 companies run mentoring programs, but only a third of people have mentors. So it feels to me like mentoring is for the few, not for the many. And that's something that perhaps we need to um, uh, uh, address. Uh, and I know there's a growing amount of um, technology being used as an enabler for mentoring uh, to, to make that happen. And the other piece to talk about is marginal mentoring. There's lots of mentoring programs going on, but they, they, they tend to deliver marginal benefit um, because it's really hard to measure or it's hugely time consuming to measure the impact. There's often no choice with who the, ment uh, the mentee gets as a mentor and all the research shows if they have choice, it works better. Um, often mentors aren't trained. It can take time for the relationship to get set up. So there are lots of challenges with mentoring programs that mean that too often firms get marginal impact, whereas uh, something that's very close to our heart and my kind of future is mentoring with purpose, where it really delivers the, the values and outcomes that, that are needed. Um, but as I said, Tim, I know you've got a view uh, and I know, Elizabeth, you've got a very personal experience you wanted to share, but let's start with Tim. Thanks, Simon. I think um, visibility is the first issue we've got to tackle, isn't it? Because social background is a masked characteristic. You can't tell at a glance by looking at somebody what their social background is. Um, and indeed, I recall having this conversation with uh, Nicholas Cheffings, uh, chair of Prime, that uh, three of us were sat in a room. And he kind of sat back and he said, if you were a fly on the wall in this room, you would have no idea what the social background of the three of us is. You can't tell by where we are. You can't tell from what we're saying. You can't tell from how we're saying it. And yet once you start to have those conversations, those revealing insights, Simon, that you mentioned from the interviews that you um, conducted early on in the City of London work, you begin to see somebody's story emerge. Um, and that story itself can be empowering that you see somebody who's come from a particular background and has overcome particular challenges to, to get to where they have. Um, I think the one thing just to add about that as a, as a segue into what I know Elizabeth wants to say about uh, mentoring is that once people are visible as being people who are supportive and who have uh, maybe characteristics in common, it's more easy to select potential mentors from amongst them once you know whom they are. Um, but Elizabeth, you've got some great experience of mentoring that I know you want to share. No, so listening to you both talk, um, you know, it's, it's very interesting how much the data supports my personal experience, which is obviously anecdotal. Um, I, I'm going to talk just about a couple of things, confidence and curiosity, which I'm, I'm not sure you can manage in the data. Um, but I'll just start with my own, my own journey. And without a doubt, uh, one, one day in 1992, somebody took a chance on me. He was a partner at Stevenson Harwood. He gave me a job as a paralegal, um, working in his effectively embryonic sort of white collar crime team. And from, from there, my career really took off and um, th that 
that has stayed with me always that I must repay that generous and confident gesture of that individual. The other thing that I, th I think I learned then and again later, uh, as I've had other mentors, is the best mentors are not people like yourself. Um, I've also learned that in the context of gender and women's diversity, it's very easy to talk to people that you're comfortable with or people like yourself. Um, and that's why I talk about curiosity. It's great to be mentored by people who will challenge you, who will ask you questions, uh, who are different from you. Um, and I've also had very much that experience and two other mentors that always come to mind for me. One is a, is, is, is a female partner at um, Slaughter and May and one is a, a male partner at Scadden, my, my own firm, both of whom challenged me and really sort of called me out on, on you know, my complaints about why I wasn't getting on, for example. But they also utterly supported me and gave me confidence to take the next steps. And just uh, talking about my partner at Skadden, um, he said something to me after a meeting, just last year actually, which just shows that this is a continuing journey. He came out of a meeting and he, he said just completely, you know, casually, there wasn't really much thought in it, I don't think. Um, but he just said, it, it's fascinating how you can reach places in a room that I can't reach. And I just thought that said such a great deal about him in terms of his generosity in praising others. And I think, you know, that's a great sign of a mentor, as somebody who's confident in themselves and is very um, comfortable praising others. And the other thing was, was curiosity, really, which is he was inquiring and thinking about why was I able to reach places uh, in a client room that he couldn't and, and acknowledging that difference was good in a very sort of gentle uh, way but it just I just felt so empowered uh, after that conversation so th they're the sort of things that I would draw out from the power of mentoring it goes on you know I'm 25 years into my career now it goes on confidence curiosity and the data follow the data so that that's really what I would like to say Elizabeth thank you there's so many uh, really powerful things you said in there about the impact that that mentoring can have and um i was put uh, lots of those grabbed me but one of them was that uh, a thing that's often overlooked is what makes a great mentor and i think one of the things you picked up on there is that generosity of spirit to to, to give their time uh, and to talk about what me as a mentor can't give but you as my mentee are able to give so that generosity of spirit seeing what other people can can, can bring that, that you can't uh, even though you're their mentor and it's supposed to be this hugely wise person who knows all those things so that generosity of spirit really struck me uh elizabeth so thank you for being so uh, open and honest about about that experience that you've had um as we move on to the last part of this uh, uh podcast you know tools like mentoring we've talked about clearly can have a hugely impactful and positively impact uh, uh on uh, people's careers and, and, and people's lives as a whole but um you've also got to make sure you've got the right environment and the right culture for mentoring to thrive um so uh, and part of that is obviously building an inclusive culture. Um, uh, uh, so, uh, Elizabeth I, and, and Tim, I know you've both got views on that, but Elizabeth, do you want to share some thoughts uh, in the last number of minutes for this podcast around uh, some, some things to, to develop an inclusive culture? 
again, my, my, my experience in, in my firm now actually mirrors uh, a lot of, uh, of what you said, Simon, in your introduction, and we are trying to follow the data with, with the caveat that because we're an international law firm, different things work slightly differently in different jurisdictions. Um, but we, we certainly, uh, a recent sort of discovery is the importance and feedback we've heard that mentoring should continue. So, so we have a you know very powerful and effective, we think, mentoring program up to three years post-qualification. But as you've just heard me articulate, and certainly our senior lawyers have articulated, actually mentors can be really valuable throughout your career, you know, however senior you are. So that's one thing uh, uh, I would uh, advocate and support. The other thing is, I think you, uh, and they're linked in a way, um, and it's again about difference. Don't necessarily have a mentor in your practice area, not even necessarily in your team, so that you can really have an open dialogue. Um, and also, I think it's important that, that mentors are powerful because we also have to be pragmatic in our career. And having a mentor who's just a really nice person but not influential in a business, whether it's a law firm or another kind of business, is only going to take you so far. And so you do need to be quite strategic in terms of who you are picking as your mentor. And you, you may have one or, or two or even three different mentors. And then just very briefly, um, perhaps think about having a mentor outside of your business. So I mentor at the request of a client, one of their um, junior lawyers. She's actually a compliance professional. She works in a similar area to me. And there's no formal process around it other than we meet regularly and it's transparent. So the general counsel asked me to do it. But that, that's a very different kind of relationship that's also very valuable. Uh, Elizabeth, I completely agree with that. Um, there's two really important points um, to, to draw out from what you've said. The first one is you've got to find somebody who is willing to do what you expect of them. Uh, somebody who's doing it under protest or because it's part of a program that they've been co-opted to is not going to be any good. Um, but one thing which comes through loud and clear from what you've said, and this has been my experience as well, is that the people who have benefited from mentoring themselves are the ones who are most passionate about doing it for the next generation. Um, it's a lovely phrase that I heard used by a, a consultant based out of the US, which is always make sure you send the elevator back down again. But once you've benefited from it, make sure that you, you benefit somebody else. Um, but I think the, the, the other point is there is a distinction, isn't there, between a mentor and a sponsor. A mentor is maybe inward looking, somebody who will help you to develop your skills and show your full potential. And that might be the same as a sponsor, but a sponsor is the person who will sit in a room and bang the table and say, no, no, on this job, you must have Elizabeth. We've got to have Elizabeth promoted. She's got all the qualities that's needed. So it's your cheerleader almost, um, uh, as well as your your, uh, your coach, uh, which is provided by the mentor. They might be the same person, but they don't have to be. And I think that's one of the thoughts uh, which comes out of the research on mentoring. Mentoring and sponsorship are different objectives, and they may not always be found within the same person. The impression that's sometimes got when we talk about mentoring and support schemes for people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds is that they're somehow lacking and have got things that need to be supplemented. 
But Elizabeth, you made the really important point that once somebody is given an opportunity and they seize it, then the sky's the limit. And you've clearly flourished with the opportunity that you described you'd been given uh, starting out at Stevenson Harwood. And my own experience um, would support that, that if you've got somebody who has struggled against more adversity to get to where they have, they're hungry for it. And if you give them the opportunity, they will seize it with both hands and they will exploit it to the best of their ability. So all you've got to do is give them that opportunity and they will take it and they will have more focus and drive very often. Um, than the people who've had it come easier to them as they've grown up through uh, their organization. So um, I wouldn't want it to be thought that uh, here are second-class citizens that we're doing the best that we can to promote them to become first-class citizens. Um, the kind of people that we're talking about have qualities uh, which are not matched by their peers, and we just need to find the opportunity for those to be, uh, to be developed out. That final point is so important, and I see that in every aspect of life, what you've talked about, Tim, which is um, uh, something you earn, uh, you just value it more. Uh, I, and, you know, and I see that at entry level. You know, I've, if I put my early talent hat on, um, you know, and, and running assessment days where we have uh, people who want to join the organization, you know, so people who don't currently work for the organization on the assessment day, but also existing employees, um, and, and, and I've often, more often than not, I see existing employees on an assessment day underperform because they have this sense of, well, I already work here, it's a, a shoe in I'm just walking through the process. They don't fight as hard for it uh, because they think it's kind of, it's bound to be in the bag because I work here already. So I think that point about um, seizing opportunities and making the most of opportunities, I think all my experiences uh, and my very personal experience is that where I've had to fight for something and I've got it, I've made a hell of a lot more of it. Uh, and I think that's the opportunity that is available to organizations with all that latent talent that they have in their, in, in their organization. And coming back to one of the first comments that we made about the business case for greater socioeconomic diversity, what better reason? And, and what the research shows around mentoring, uh, and I touched on this a bit, a bit earlier, um, but Elizabeth, you made a really good point, which made me think I, I, it, it's worth picking back up again, is choice. Too often what happens with mentoring programs is uh, if you put your hand up to be mentored, you know, you talk about what it is you want, and then you're assigned somebody. Um, and actually what the, what the evidence shows is if the mentee has choice as to who they have as their mentor, um, then the results are, are, are much improved. Um, and I think that also then helps support that piece that you talked about earlier, Elizabeth, which is um, the ability, therefore, to choose mentors that are not like you. Um, so by, by empowering choice. And again, uh, uh, technology can play a really powerful role in enabling that choice and, and making that uh, uh, much easier. The other point I wanted to pick up on um, uh, which I think is a, a really overlooked one, and I'm really pleased you mentioned it, Elizabeth, is, is having mentors outside of your own firm. Um, uh, and and if, if I think about lots of the conversations I've been having with firms about their mentoring programs, they're really keen. Um, what tends to happen is people become more senior within an organization, actually becomes quite hard 
to find a mentor as you become more and more senior. Um, uh, and, and therefore, looking outside of your firm is is it can be in a way to address that as well as bringing the benefits of having a mentor who's outside of your organization. It's a bit like having your own non-exec director, as if you were aboard yourself, um, who just brings that different perspective uh, um, and a, a wider perspective, which will help you, particularly as you become more senior. You know, as you become more senior, it's not so much about your skills, it, it's about your wider awareness from uh, 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 from an economic standpoint and, and so on and so forth. And and again, if I think particularly think about you know uh, law firms and and, and the different uh, areas of focus that, that you have from an industry perspective, you know having a mentor who's not uh, in a law firm but works in a sector, an industry sector you're part of, who's very senior, could be really valuable. Elizabeth, any comments you want to wrap up with on on the the value of mentoring and mentoring with purpose, to borrow Simon's phrase? I was listening to those remarks uh, and and. You know, I do, I, I, I do agree with a lot of that's been said. You know, at university, I didn't have a grant, and my dad couldn't give me an allowance, so I had to work two nights a week. You know, I still remember that kind of sick feeling of going to the cash machine and wondering if, if you were gonna, if it was gonna give you five pounds then, which you know would have given you a good night out. But I also am very mindful about you know any kind of stereotypes, and I'm fascinated by the most motivated young people that I work with. And many of them are from um, less, um, you know, environments where they have had to work hard and have always had part-time jobs and the education hasn't been so good. But I'm also fascinated by children who have had those benefits and are still immensely committed and immensely hardworking. And I've spent quite a lot of time lately thinking about why that is. Is it their parents? Is it their life experience? Is it inherently who, who they are? And, and for me, where, whatever their background, they are the qualities that I look for. You know, how, how much do you want to do this? How, how driven are you? And how, crucially for me, are willing are you to work with a variety of different people in a really open and collaborative way? So I guess that would be my, my observation. Yeah.